Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, the news here in Washington this week is that Congress averted, at least for now, a crisis on the debt limit by doing, well, what it does best, deferring the crisis for another day. But for now, at least, the debt limit issue is no longer the must-do item on Capitol Hill. And that allows us to return our attention to the House Reconciliation and Tax Bill, the Build Back Better Act. Today is October 13th, and that's exactly one month removed from the September 13th release of the Ways and Means Committee's legislative text specifying the tax increases it proposed as a means for paying for the Build Back Better Act. And honestly, had you asked me on September 13th where the bill would be in one month's time, I would have probably said arriving in the Senate. But obviously, it's not. And really, it's not even that close to getting to the Senate. Well, why and how? Those are very good questions, and that's our topic for today. Our topic is to check in on the Build Back Better Act, more specifically the tax title, and to ask what's now and what's next. To help me do just that, I'm joined by our friends, Jen Acuna and Jennifer Gray. So let's get started. The first question, this is for you, Jen. Where is the Build Back Better Act now? Where are we in the process after all that conversation we had? It's gotten kind of quiet. So where are we? You know, it's funny. Everyone is asking the same question. Where is it? There seemed to be a huge pickup in activity in September. There was this whole push. Everyone was racing towards September 27th. Remember when that was a deadline? And now the House Budget Committee did approve the Build Back Better Act. So it went through committee on September 25th. Since then, you know, the next stop in reconciliation is it has to go through House rules before it can get a floor vote, right? That sets the contours of floor activity. That has not happened yet. Right now, it's kind of in limbo. To use a technical term, it is in limbo. Right now, we're waiting on negotiations on the top line number for the bill in order to determine, you know, what should go in and what gets kicked out of the bill. So legislative purgatory, there's another name for it. So it's moved <laughs> through the committees of jurisdiction, but now it's still pending rules where it will get a rule which will set it up for debate. And of course, the actual debate on the floor for actual passage is somewhere stuck there. Okay, got it. So then Jennifer, before we get to what happens next on the bill, what do we know about the Build Back Better Act, the total bill? Right? We were very focused on the ways and means aspect of it. What do we know about the total bill? Well, we know it's quite large. We're not entirely sure how large because we are still waiting for official numbers from the Congressional Budget Office. But every estimate is that the bill is somewhere north of $4 trillion is everyone's understanding. So it's quite large. Certainly, I think that will probably change as it moves forward. But in addition to the tax stuff, it has tons of stuff in it uh, on the healthcare side, on the environmental side, just tons and tons of stuff. So it's quite a large bill and it's going to be interesting to see how it moves forward. <laughs> Help me here for a second, because one of the things we know, and of course, this is still a point of contention, but we know and we talked about on prior episodes is that there was an agreement to have this reconciliation bill have a top line number of $3.5 We did an episode on that. You're telling me that the bill that moved through the House, through the various committees of jurisdiction, actually was greater than that. It was more than $4 trillion is our best guess. How do, exactly does that happen? 
Well, I mean, basically, the various committees, a number of them did not bent over their allotment on their parts of the bill. And so, you know, it moved forward to budget committee. Budget committee really is just a stapling function. It does not make any substantive changes. So whatever came out of committee is still in the bill as it currently stands. As Jen said, the bill itself is in a bit of limbo now, a bit of a holding pattern. But basically, the committees went over their allocations, or at least That's- a number of them did. Well, it's always tempting to spend more than you have, I guess, is the reality. But it's also, in fairness to the committees, they may not have known exactly how much their packages would cost. They were having rough estimates from CBO, but it's also possible as CBO continues to refine their understanding of what was in the legislation, it ended up costing more than the committees themselves originally thought. But I agree with you. I continue to hear that the bill is well over $4 trillion, maybe as much as four and a half, which will make the process of cutting it down based on whatever deal we get to in the Senate all the more complicated. All right, Jen, back to you then. We know that the bills moved through the committees of jurisdiction, it's through the budget committee, it awaits rules. It's been stuck there for a while. What exactly is the holdup in getting the Build Back Better Act sort of out of the House? You know, I wish there could be a complicated answer, but it's actually a really simple answer of what's holding it up. The top line number. There has to be an agreement on how big the bill is before you can move on to, all right, well, now that we have established how big we want the bill to be, what's going to go in it, right? What are the components of the bill going to be? And that first step is still what's holding it up. You're saying that despite the agreement on $3.5 trillion and exceeding that or whatever they did, that it's still not entirely clear how big this bill is going to be. And I guess what you're saying, and is tell me if this is true, is that Members in the House don't want to vote for a bill that can't ever pass the Senate. Is that right? Well, they don't want a bill that can't pass the Senate, but also if they do pass a bill that's much larger, which the current bill is, than what could pass in the Senate, who's going to be making those tough calls? I think it just makes more sense politically if they can reach an agreement before they have to duke it out on the House floor. I mean, no one wants to see these battles take place on the floor through the amendment process. It would be a much more streamlined process should it be um, pre-negotiated. And that's what's taking place right now. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Jen. I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is if a large bill comes out of the House and there are a lot of popular things in it, and then it goes to the Senate and needs to be cut down there, it in some ways makes the Senate Democrats make the hard decisions. And I think they want both the House Democrats as well as the Senate Democrats making those hard decisions together. Interesting. So we're stuck a little bit. So then, Jennifer, what will it take then? What's in this process will get the bill moving again? What is the thing that they need to do to get the Build Back Better Act sort of moving and back into the machinery of the House and ultimately into the Senate? I think the first thing it needs is some sort of a top number so folks know what the goal they're building a bill toward that is. But overall, I think folks need at least some level of certainty. I think the moderates need some level of certainty that they would not be supporting tax increases and some other things that would then disappear that might be hard votes for them. And I think the progressives need some level of certainty, at least, that the programs that they think are important are likely to stay in a final bill as it moves its way, not only on the House floor, but through the Senate floor as well. So first, they need that number. And then I think folks just need at least a little bit of feeling better that their priorities will continue to stay in the bill. So we did an episode on this, I don't know, some time ago, where we had this chicken and egg problem between moderates and progressives 
progressives wanted the bill to be bigger, moderates were inclined to potentially have it smaller, and they were focused more on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So based on what you said is to get this thing moving again, we're going to need a top line number, which presumably is going to be smaller, certainly smaller than what the House bill currently is at four something, probably smaller than the 3.5 that was the original outline framework of a deal. But I think, Jennifer, you're saying that we also need really more detail around what is going to be in or not in the bill before all the parties involved can get comfortable voting for it, right? Yeah. And another issue we're hearing quite a bit about is that the Democrats are discussing among themselves that there are a lot of ideas to go in the bill. And so from what we understand, there are discussions going on intra-party about Assuming they have a smaller bucket of money to spend, do they want to do a lot of programs and maybe have those phase out or make them smaller in some way? Or do they want to maybe do fewer programs but be able to have those programs be more expansive? So I think that's another discussion, you know, going on to some extent. But again, even that discussion is difficult without that overall number that they're working toward. Well, it's funny. It's a strategic choice you have to make, which is you could make fewer programs permanent or make all of them or more of them temporary. And then I guess the idea is sort of dare Republicans at some future point. We know if Democrats are in control, they will extend them. If Republicans are in control, sort of dare them to not extend them, which oddly is more or less what Republicans did with the individual title of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, of course, expiring at the end of 2025. Jen, you were there. I mean, was it part of the calculus that, first of all, 2025 sounded like a really long time away, but also that it was creating this dynamic where by 2025, you'd expect there'd be pressure to extend some of those things, even if Democrats were in control? Definitely. That's always the case in reconciliation, right? You try to sunset provisions that you feel pretty comfortable or at least somewhat confident in that it will get extended. I think the Republicans learned a bit of a lesson, or I think they did, from what happened with the Bush tax cuts, because they did do that. They had a lot of individual tax cuts that did sunset after 10 years, and not all of those were extended. At the time when the 10 years came up, Obama was in the White House, and so there was divided government, and not all of those tax cuts were extended, but it's certainly a large percentage of them were. And so I think Republicans, at least some of those perhaps think from that experience that when the TCJ went into place that they felt comfortable, some of those might be extended. And be interesting to think what Democrats may have gleaned from that situation as well. Right. That looming ex expiration date that during my time on the Hill, it was always hanging over our heads. I remember thinking very much like, oh, wow, I think in the case of the Bush tax cuts, it was 2010 thinking, how are we going to deal with this by the time we get to 2010? And ultimately they did temporary extensions. They ultimately worked out a deal, as you said, uh, Jennifer, but the Republicans weren't able to extend everything. And so you're right. Uh, not clear exactly what the lesson from that experience was. OK, so coming back to the tax aspects of the Build Back Better Act. The totality of the tax increases included in the bill, I believe, were $2.1 trillion. Okay, so the tax increases, $2.1 trillion. They spent a lot in tax credits and incentives, et cetera. I guess if the bill gets smaller, then the tax title gets smaller. Jen, is that a reasonable assumption is that if the bill gets cut to 2.5 or less, that the tax title would be dialed back proportionally or not necessarily? Well, I mean, I really think that it depends on the position with respect to how much of the bill needs to be paid for. Will the whole entire thing need to be paid for? Probably not. I mean, these things have a habit of uh, tending to increase the deficit, and there is a significant 
deficit instruction in that reconciliation instruction, there's 1.75 trillion in potential added deficit to the bill and still meet their reconciliation instruction. So I would say yes and no. I mean, 2 trillion, maybe half of it needs to be paid for, maybe 75%, but 100% paid for. I mean, that goes even beyond what Republicans did and even beyond what people are talking about today during the discussion of the bill. So that's an interesting point you make, that if they rely on some of the deficit aspect of the reconciliation instructions to help finance the bill, that that takes pressure off the tax increases. There could be other pay-fors that are non-tax. It's really an interesting question of the $2.1 trillion of current tax increases in the bill that moved through the Ways and Means Committee, if they only need half of that, well, which half of the $2.1 trillion stays in and which half stays out? Any predictions on things that are going to get a good hard look or no? Too early to tell. What do you say? Well, I think that individual title was pretty heavy in the House Ways and Means Bill. That is where there is the most common ground with the administration, but it raised over a trillion dollars in tax. So I think maybe there's some room there on the corporate side. I mean, it would seem that that's really where a lot of the pressure is with respect to the lobbying of the bill. It's really on that corporate side. So there may be some opportunity there to lighten it a little bit, even if it was just a 25% decrease in the raisers on corporate, a little more on individual to provide more parity between the two titles. Right. I personally, I'll just say it was a little surprised that the corporate rate came out at 26.5. We had always said, we thought the range, if you looked at all the comments that people have made and all the conversations that was really in the 24 to 26 range. So maybe there's room to come down on the corporate rate. There's a lot of interesting questions about the international tax title as to, or the international section as to whether or not that will be scaled back. But I agree with you. I think everything is in play. And if half the razors stay in and half stay out, it's kind of this fascinating, you know, reverse hunger games dynamic where, you know, you're trying to get yourself removed from the process rather than stay in. And that's going to be one of the interesting parlor games to watch here in Washington over the coming months. I'm not saying that the tax title will be cut in half. Theoretically, they could keep it all. I mean, they could raise revenue net on this bill, and that would be fine under the reconciliation instructions. But I think the political reality is the tax title will get scaled back. Last question, really for both of you, but Jennifer, let me start with you. We made, I think, a few predictions over the course of this year on the Biden plan, one of which is we always thought this would be a late exercise, you know, late Q4 into December. Anyway, my question to you is, have any of the things that you thought about this bill, timing or size or content or otherwise, have they changed now that we've gotten ourselves into October, well into October, and we've actually seen legislative text? The big thing that changed has already happened, which is I, I think we saw the, that legislative tax come out of the Ways and Means Committee a bit earlier than we had expected. I think, you know, I at least had really thought we might be looking at that first draft right around this time period now in October. So I think that having already passed was a bit of a change. But as far as the timing of a final bill, we really thought we were looking at somewhere in the Thanksgiving to December range. And I think we're, we're probably still there. I mean, assuming we see a bill, I think uh, that's probably still the most likely time frame for enactment. I think we've been pretty consistent on saying that, and I think that's still right. What about you, Jen? Yep, no, I agree. The timing has remained pretty consistent. The one thing I will say is at the beginning, you know, these bills tend to get bigger, not smaller. So I found that that was interesting, that there has been really kind of a push, mostly on behalf of the Senate moderates, to move the bill 
to be smaller in size and not bigger. Usually it's the opposite. You see the bills get bigger and bigger and bigger and they just kind of become these behemoth bills. But this one started off as a behemoth bill and now it's turning into just a large bill. That's completely right. And to your point, usually these things get bigger. We saw that earlier in the year in the bill in March, ARPA started off at $1.9 trillion top line and it ended up being more top line. They had to net it out with a few tax increases, if you all recall. And normally the dynamic is you're exactly right that we need to make it bigger to cobble together the votes. But in this case, it has in fact looking like it's going to get smaller. I guess if there are any surprises to me is that they have not fully embraced the deficit instruction and the reconciliation instructions. You know, they haven't just said, yep, 1.75 trillion. We we gave ourselves that amount and that's absolutely positively going to go. We're going to use the 1.75 and then we'll pay for the rest. Now, they may still get there, but they haven't yet fully said, well, they're going to use that full $1.75 trillion that they can add to the deficit as part of this bill. So that was a bit of a surprise to me. Well, uh, that's all we have time for today. Jen, Jennifer, thank you very much. In closing, let me just reflect again on the larger legislative dynamic here affecting the Build Back Better Act. Recall, as we discussed in prior episodes, there is the ongoing split between progressive Democrats who want to move the reconciliation bill and to make it as large as possible, and moderate Democrats who want to first pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill and then turn to a smaller reconciliation bill. In an earlier episode in talking about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I invoked the thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat. I was more or less saying that the infrastructure bill was both alive and dead at the same time. And arguably, here months later, it remains just that. Well, I got an email last week asking whether I would use that same analogy to describe the Build Back Better Act. And I thought about it for a while, and I think I'd like to describe it just a little bit differently. Now, indulge me for a second here because I have to go back a ways, but in my school days, I did take a year or two of Latin. And honestly, I don't really remember much from those classes, just a phrase here or there. Sorry, Mr. Michonne. But one phrase I do remember, and I think I remember it because it's such a vivid image, is Aribus teneo lupum. That means I hold a wolf by the ears. It's sort of a Latin version of holding a tiger by the tail. The idea, of course, is to reflect on a situation with two bad options. Holding on to the wolf's ears, well, that's dangerous, but obviously so is letting go. And that's the analogy that jumps to mind for me here, in particular for that sizable number of House Democrats who are committed to a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. They are reluctant to let go of that big top line number because, well, they'll have to answer to those who elected them and expected a once in a generation investment in hard and in human infrastructure, as they call it. On the other hand, holding on to that number creates the risk of getting nothing, no reconciliation bill and no bipartisan bill. At the moment, neither one of those options seems very attractive. So what's the ending here? Well, obviously you know what I'm gonna say, we don't know. But perhaps with sufficient assurances and various gestures of goodwill from the Senate, the grip on the ears will loosen and ultimately turn the wolf loose. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.